they were always afraid, I think, that one of the units would get cut or that they would be bumped down to the fourth unit, which was the one that was not usually allowed to make Bugs Bunny cartoons, which was, uh, and the, um, and so this competition to make the funniest cartoons and save their jobs made them funnier because they had to be to survive. They had, uh, if, if they went into a movie theater and the audience was not laughing, they were doomed. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's gift-giving season, and just in time for it, fellow Nitrateville moderator Bruce Calvert and I are back with our annual Top 10 in physical media releases. And it's also duck season, or rabbit season. So we talked to Jamie Weinman, Duck Season, author of a new history of Warner Brothers cartoons, Rabbit Season. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Duck Season. Hello, Bruce. Welcome. Glad to be here. So, been any movies lately? I guess I actually have. So, I've been getting out a little bit, but I've been watching a lot more at home. Yeah, same here. You know, I didn't I didn't race back to theaters. The first batch of things that came out, I don't remember what all they were, but, you know, like Mulan or Fast and the Furious 9 or whatever it is. You know, I, I, I wasn't in a hurry to see those in theaters. I finally went to something when uh, The Green Knight was playing at the Music Box here in Chicago. So that was, you know, that was what got me back into a theater for the first time in, I don't know, 18 months or whatever it was. So I haven't been to anything recently because I've been really busy the last couple of months. But I even went to movies last year during the pandemic before I was vaccinated. And when there's only 15 or 20 people in the theater... You know, it it seemed pretty safe to me, and I, I didn't get sick from it. And and our local uh, Dallas Classy Film Group rented out uh, a theater about three or four times last year, and uh, so that we could just get together and watch something, you know, on a big screen. Yeah, no, I when I went to the Green Knight, it was you know it had been playing for a few weeks, and it was Wednesday at nine o'clock or something like that. I had a whole section to myself, so I wasn't worried about you know anything getting past my mask or anything like that so but then, then on the other hand you went to Portnone this yeah, year yeah we both went to film festivals yeah Portnone i mean that was interesting they ran it very officially and in accordance with various guidelines so we're all we were like staggered in our seats because of course covid can't travel diagonally uh <laughs> but uh you know i mean doing the best they can now, you went to Capital Fest. 
Yeah, I, I had planned to go to Mostly Lost, but it was canceled. Yeah. And um, so I was able to talk my wife into letting me come to Capital Fest, and I loved it. The, the theater is a vintage theater. The people there are really friendly. You get a nice mix of all kinds of genres, but they uh, had focused on the, the Bennett sisters, and so about almost half of the schedule was that. But it was it was really a lot of fun. And it was great to see cinephiles again after two years. Yeah. <laughs> but we're here to talk about movies on disc at home. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, people, like we said last year, people have been talking about, you know, oh, physical media is going away. It's all going to streaming. I think this year was a pretty strong indication that there is a healthy market for physical media. You don't see a lot in stores. It's not like all these oddball things that Kino is releasing or at your local Best Buy. But you know, we all order everything online anyway, so what difference does it make? And in a lot of ways, physical media to me is really leading film appreciation. You know, the the streaming services have a certain amount of that. I mean, I think the the offerings on HBO Max, for instance, are quite good. Now, they totally hide them, so you really have to go hunting for them. But, you know, what's on their TCM hub at any moment is, is nice. But part of what's on there is the things that Warner Archive has already released. So, I mean, it's really, it's it's the disc collector who is driving the most interesting stuff that's happening in what films we're getting to see. Yeah, the thing is, the, the studios or the disc distributors are going to restore these films anyway. So it, it helps them to release it both on disc and streaming because a lot of cinephiles want things on disc so they can grab it when they want to see it and they like to watch movies more than once. But if you're a casual streamer, I mean, they can get you that way too. And, and Kino and Warner archive, especially they've released a huge amount of films this year. Yeah, no, it was really nice to see Warner archive come back. I mean, last year, AT&T couldn't care less about the old movies they owned. And so they were kind of, you know, they sort of were wrapping up the Warner archive operation, but then they got wrapped up and kicked out of there instead. And, you know, George Feltenstein is back at Warner archive and they've got a pretty healthy release schedule. So, I mean, it's really, it's good to see that that's back and that the, uh, the market is recognized. So, and universal has been working with Kino and they've been restoring a ton of their, Old films, especially silent films, and we're going to talk about one tonight, but the thing is they're releasing a lot of really obscure silent films, too, that nobody's ever heard of and people thought they would never get to see, and it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, movies that you'd never heard of before. I mean, 13 Washington Square. I mean, I don't think yeah. any, anyone's ever seen that that movie, but it's a, a fun little movie that uh, mm -hmm. came out just because they happen to have a, a good print of it, so why not put it out? I mean, I, I like that attitude. And and the thing is, it, as, as we all complain on Nitrateville, this stuff is sitting in archives. It's not doing anyone any good. Well, at least some of the studios see, well, I've got this asset. It's in good shape. I can release it and make some money off of it. And I'm sure that they don't make a lot of money off of it because the restoration costs a lot, but it could be that they are able to use these expenses for restoring classic films to offset some of their profits that they make from 
current day films and then they don't have to pay as many taxes or something. However they do it, I'm happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, you know, studio accounting is an area that I don't think we should try and delve into, but but yeah, that 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 works for me for sure. Um, you know, one thing in particular and I talked about this a little with Eddie Muller when he was on um, is just there's been so much film noir this year. You know, and I started this segment with a little bit of the music from one of the films I'm about to talk about. Music by Astor Piazzolla, as it turns out. Kino has released a bunch of Paramount ones that they licensed from Universal. Warner Archive released things. Uh, you know, the the full-length version of They Won't Believe Me came out this year. Uh, there's so much richness in that area. I mean invent a genre that's fairly cheap to make and lots of people will play with it. So um, one of the things that I got this year, and I don't know if you have a uh, region-free player. No, or, unfortunately I don't. Or mess with that. But uh, I got, I have so far I've acquired these three beautiful box sets of Colombian noirs from Indicator, which is a UK label. I mean, they're they're really handsomely done boxes with booklets inside uh, each movie in a in a little slipcase, and it's just like this is such golden treatment for these movies that were throwaways back in the day. It's kind of amazing that they get treated that way. Um, now, how many of those have I watched yet? Uh, don't really want to answer that, but, uh, I've seen, you know, cause I've been watching all these other things that have been coming out to keep up with the latest releases, but you know, someday when I'm snowed in, I've got 28 hours of Colombian noirs to catch up on. Mm -hmm. So before you start though, I think we should mention that we both agonized over this list and we could both probably drop out three or four titles and put some other ones in that we really liked. So maybe next year it should be the top 15 or something. But, <laughs> yeah. But there's um, really been some great stuff released this year. All right. My first one, uh, Eddie Muller actually talked about how this release came about when he was on Nitrateville Radio a few months back. In 2008, uh, I took a trip with my wife to Argentina and in a research and contacted some people. I, I do this now whenever I travel overseas. I try to find people where I'm going who are into film, who are cinephiles and might lead me to noir that I wouldn't otherwise know about. Who knew that there were noirs from Argentina? In fact, uh, when I was watching one of them, I you know I kind of had to think: Have I ever seen a film from Argentina? I don't know. So I looked them up, and yes, I I had seen I think three before this, um, two of which had won the best foreign film Oscar, and one of which was nominated for it. So I guess that's how Argentinian films get to America most of the time, if they do. But anyway, here. There are uh, two noirs that were made in Argentina in the early 50s, um, brought to America by Eddie Muller's Film Noir Foundation, restored by UCLA, and uh, now out from Flickr Alley. One called The Beast Must Die, which oddly enough is based on a British murder mystery by Daniel Day-Lewis's father, Cecil Day-Lewis. And then the other one is called The Bitter Stems. And I really like The Bitter Stems. I mean, it is the truest noir of the pair. A guy who's a newspaper reporter decides that he, he's not crazy about the racket he's in. And he meets a barman who needs to make money to bring his family over from Europe. 
they get a, a, together a scheme for doing a fraudulent uh, journalism correspondence course. Now, frankly, I don't know what the difference between a fraudulent journalism course and a uh, legit journalism course would be. It <laughs> seems to me you're sort of doing the same thing either way. But let's assume this is a crime somehow. Um, but it, he starts to think that his other guy, you know, is going to steal all the money and that the family he's supposedly going to bring over, you know, doesn't really exist. So he decides, well, I'll get it first. So he plots to kill the other guy. And it just gets darker and darker from there. Um, it really kind of reminded me, in some ways, less of an American noir movie than like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents or The Twilight Zone. I mean, it's bleak stuff, but very well made. So The Bitter Stems, that's my uh, leading off at number 10. Wow, that sounds that sounds pretty juicy. I'll have to put that on my list. Well, for number nine, imagine that you're Harold Lloyd in 1927 or 1928. You're at the top of your game making comedy features, but you only want to make one a year. The problem is you own your own studio and you have gag writers, cameramen, and film editors under contract. So what do you do? Well, you produce a series of two real comedies that keep your studio running and your crew working. Initially, it was hard for me to think of Edward Everett Horton as a silent film comedian, as I always think of his soft voice when I think of him. But he starred in a series of excellent silent comedies for Lloyd's studio. And silent film accompanist Ben Modell has assembled them for his undercrank DVD set called Edward Everett Horton, Eight Silent Comedies. And there's not a single bad one on the whole set. The disc also has a short featurette that's a quick overview of Horton's silent shorts. And I don't need to mention that Ben's music for the set is top-notch, but I will anyway. One of my favorites is Dad's Choice, which was which Ben actually showed at Capitol Fest, where Horton has to go shopping with his girlfriend, Sharon Lynn, but is quite embarrassed when she goes to buy lingerie. And after that, he tries to elope with her, but he can't get into her mansion without a bodyguard throwing him out. So it turns out her father loves to garden, and Eddie mistakes her father is the gardener and enlists his help in getting his daughter to elope. It's really funny. <laughs> but like I said, all of them are fantastic. Yeah, I really like these because, I don't know, sometimes I find uh, low-budget slapstick comedy a little depressing just because, you know, the settings are kind of threadbare. The plotting may be totally random. You know, it's a very common thing is silent comedy is the first reel and the second reel seem to belong to completely different movies. Yep. Mm -hmm. The anarchy can be a lot of fun, but sometimes you just kind of wish they held together as movies better. Well, these do not have that problem. They're all really well produced and they're well plotted and scripted with coherent plots you know, and not that that's that surprising. It's pretty common at Hal Roach by that point, but it certainly makes them a pleasure to see that you know everything just works well and on a high level of quality. So I really enjoyed these, and big hat tip to Ben Modell who, you know, and the Library of Congress. I mean, these films were in the archives, and they put a couple of them that were out of order back together and did some cleanup and made them available through a Kickstarter. So yeah, you should definitely have this and, you know, see what silent comedy could be on a, on a high production level like this. My number eight, Kino continues putting out uh, films from the Murnau Stiftung, which is the 
Film Preservation Foundation in Germany from the Weimar and Nazi era. Kind of been waiting. You know, I've found many of these very interesting. Has there been a masterpiece that's been lost to us all these years because Nazi films were not exactly uh, in favor or commercial in, you know, in the West? Mm, I don't know about that, but a disc that comes close to offering that is a pair of two films by Douglas Sirk, who would soon depart for America. In fact, uh, the second film does not have his name on it because he had already left. The first one is called To New Shores, and the second one is called La Habanera. They're both from 1937. They're interesting to me because you can see Sirk in development and moving toward what he's going to be in Hollywood once he gets there. Cirque was very, you know, would eventually wind up remaking a lot of films by the American director John Stahl. And I think we, what you see here is Stahl's influence in the works earlier in Cirque's career because they're very much in that sort of high level woman's weepy picture about the woman who sacrifices for the love she has, even though the man is not really worthy of it. You know, and if you thought Backstreet was going to make you cry, To New Shores really does it. A woman winds up being sent to Australia as a deported prisoner for the man she loves and who is happy to have her take the rap for him. It's it's intense, uh, you know, and a very moving film made at a high level of quality. I mean, one thing all these German films have is even if the story material and the philosophy of the film is not particularly good, they're always produced on a very high level. There's a lot of the German films that came out. They're all interesting to check out. Science fiction fans will really like FP1 doesn't answer. But uh, the Cirque set, uh, which two movies on one disc, you know, what a deal. Mm -hmm. um, well worth checking out. There have been six murders committed all in the same circumstances. The evidence points here. I'd agree to lay off for 48 hours. But I give you my word, if you don't succeed, I'll come in here, seal every door, place everybody under technical arrest, take fingerprints, conduct a rigid inspection. I don't care if the whole world knows it. Well, on to number seven. Last year, the Warner Archive and the UCLA Film and Television Archive gave us a great edition of the early two-color technicolor film Mystery of the Wax Museum. And this year, they repeated their success with the two-color film that came out before that one called Dr. X from 1932. It stars Lionel Atwill as a possible mad scientist who is investigating some murders where the victim's flesh was taken. The gorgeous Faye Ray plays his daughter, and Lee Tracy plays a bumbling, fast-talking reporter. Now, much like the previous release, UCLA has done an incredible job, and the color probably looks better than it did when projected in a theater in 1932. This film was shot simultaneously in black and white, and both versions are included on the disc. We also get a featurette called The Horror Films of Michael Cortez, a comparison of several scenes before and after the restoration in a theatrical trailer. There's two good commentary tracks. The first is by Cortez bi biographer Alan K. Road, and the second is by the UCLA head of preservation Scott McQueen. The thing about this movie is the story is preposterous as the police grant Dr. X 48 hours to try to trap the killer himself. Warner Brothers was definitely not the best studio for a horror film in the 1930s, and they put too much goofy comedy in with Lee Tracy. However, having said that, 
The last 10 minutes of this film is quite suspenseful, and it gets as gruesome as any pre-code film from the 1930s. So stick around to the end. You're going to love it. Yeah, now this this is a lot of fun. I think in some ways this is maybe more fun than Mystery of the Wax Museum, although objectively not really as good a thriller. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting is the inclusion of that black and white version. It's very interesting to compare how the two were shot. I mean, it's not a situation where they just took a, you know, like one of the strips of Technicolor and made it black and white. They shot a completely different version on the same sets, same actors, probably the same day. But the lighting is completely different to use black and white well. I mean, you can just see it. The The color photography is designed to bring out the colors and let them pop. And the black and white photography does, you know, careful chiaroscuro and stuff like that. So not that anyone is going to be racing to watch the black and white version first on this. But, you know, once you've seen the color version, it's well worth checking out the other as well. And sometimes the black and white line readings are slightly different than the color one. So it truly is a different film. All right. Well, speaking of Technicolor, for number six, you know, I was thinking what are the great color releases this year. Um, I certainly enjoyed uh, The Court Jester that I talked about with Andrea Callis from Paramount. Um, That was a 6K restoration of Vista Vision and Technicolor. And I thought I was going to name Warner Archives' release of The Naked Spur, which is the first good video edition of one of the best Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart westerns. And then I got out another disc that I had bought, I don't know, some months earlier, and watched it. Riding into this cauldron of intrigue and danger is one of the most adventurous warriors ever to lead an army on to victory. Lord Essex, dashing knight of Elizabeth's round table, whose deeds have captured the admiration of the nation and the heart of the queen. Put your arms around me. Do you love me still? I love you always. Yes, if this were false, then I would know it now. And truly, I should die. The Private Lives of, of Elizabeth and Essex is not like the other uh, Errol Flynn swashbucklers that we're all familiar with. It's more of a serious drama based on a kind of soapy royalty play by Maxwell Anderson um, and stars Betty Davis as Queen Elizabeth and Errol Flynn as the Earl of Essex. It's interesting. Davis didn't really want Flynn for it. She thought he wasn't that much of an actor, and she wanted Laurence Olivier, who would have been fine. But I kind of like the way Flynn is used in this. I mean, the fact that he's maybe a little over his head as an actor is good for Essex, who's not, you know, he's more hot-headed than a savvy political player um, in Queen Elizabeth's court. But the main thing that I loved about this is just that it is... Such a gorgeous use of Technicolor. 1939, you know, set decoration by Anton Groh, who did so many of uh, Cortez's films. And it's like watching N.C. Wyeth paintings come to life or something like that. The color is so rich um, and, you know, just has such texture to it. I mean, it really is one of the most beautiful color discs put out so even though i don't quite love it as a movie as much as the seahawk or adventures of robin hood or something like that um it's a total pleasure to watch now on to number five okay my next pick 
is from Universal, because this studio's quest to restore many of its old classics is continuing, and one of their best projects of the last year is Kino's new release of Lon Chaney Sr. as the Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923. The film only exists in two original 16mm prints that have a lot of wear. And this film is a war horse, and I've had the David Shepard DVD for quite a while. I don't have the Flickr Alley Blu-ray, but I've heard it looks nice. But i got to tell you that Universal really outdid themselves. It looks amazing. Apparently, they photographed each frame in several different colors and digitally restored the film in 4K. And dang, it just looks nice. You can really see the detail on the giant sets, and the scratches on the film are no longer distracting at all. Universal normally specialized in modestly budgeted westerns and serials, and this film was only their second multi-million dollar project after The Foolish Wives in 1922, and they didn't really want to make a million dollar film with that one. The sets look really amazing, and it was really a breakout performance for Lon Chaney, and he proves that you don't have to be a romantic idol to be the star of a film. And a very young Patsy Ruth Miller does a great job with her part of Esmeralda. Norman, Norman Carey plays the male hero Phoebus, and he isn't terrible, but I'd say he's one of the few flaws of the film. As for extras, Farron Smith Nime seems to be on every other classic film disc release lately, and here she provides a good commentary on the making of the film. The music is by Nora Kroll Rosenbaum and Laura Karpman. And it's probably a little more modern than you would have heard in 1923, but you got to remember this film appeals not just to silent film fans, but to horror fans that probably aren't so into authentic musics. And I think it'll please both groups. There's also a slideshow of the original program book and production stills and publicity materials. Kino also added a couple of unique but not really interesting shorts. One is a cheaply produced Life in Hollywood newsreel where we get to see the Universal stars walking around the studio, and Chaney's showing off the Notre Dame set. And the other is home movie footage of Chaney and his family, including Creighton Chaney, who we better know now as Lon Chaney Jr. All right, and now number four. Just think, you two alone, right now, in this room, on this boat, in the middle of the sea. What would you give, Irene? I'd give my soul. You're right, Bruce. This time you're right. This time there is another man. You set a trap to catch me with one. And another came instead to tell me that he loves me. And for me to tell him I love him, too. One of my favorite films of the 1930s, though kind of a, a second-tier title that not a lot of people had seen before, is a Frank Borzaghi film from 1937 called History is Made at Night. Now, it ought to have had a, a a little boost in popularity around the time that Titanic came out because Titanic pretty much steals a lot of it. You know, there's the evil boyfriend and the woman who's trying to escape from him and the working class guy who she falls in love with and who helps her get away. Um, because it's not literally the Titanic, they can take whatever uh, liberties they want with it, and you can decide for yourself the symbolism of the <clears throat> the ship which was designed by the evil boyfriend 
uh, stiffly ramming into the frigid iceberg in the North Atlantic and getting stuck there. Uh, which is, it's kind of funny, actually, a Titanic that doesn't sink. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's it's a very moving film, you know, typically lush, lushly romantic from Borzaghi. Um, unfortunately, being produced by Walter Wanger, there really wasn't good material out there for a long time. Um, they showed it on Filmstruck back in the day, and that was actually a pretty terrible print, probably the worst print I saw on that service uh, before it went away and eventually spawned the Criterion Channel. Um, so it's great that there is now a really good copy of History is Made at Night. And I hope people are discovering this film and appreciating you know, the artistry of Borzaghi at kind of the, the height of his late 30s period. Now, as a as a disc i'm looking at the extras here there's a there's an actual interview on film with borzaghi that's a rarity i don't think i've ever heard his voice um and there's an interview with farron smith nemi so uh like you say she's on every disc and if not her imaging sarah smith yep uh but uh and you know some other other extras, kind of a cool booklet in it. But the main thing is just this movie lo- finally looks good and looks as you know sort of romantic and dreamy as it ought to be. So I'm I'm very happy to have that. Yeah, I'll have to check that out because I haven't seen that film since I watched my laser disc probably 20 years ago, and that looked <laughs> yeah. like it was a 16 millimeter print. So it really needed a restoration. Probably was. Number three, Bruce. Well, my next disc is actually a box set. Last year, the Laurel and Hardy sound set was our number one pick, but this year the boys are back again, but in a much different way. The Laurel or Hardy set from the Library of Congress, Lobster Films, Rob Stone, and Flickr Alley features Stan and Ollie in solo films, all short films. It's almost 10 hours of comedy shorts. While all the other discs I'm recommending will appeal to just about everyone, this set is really aimed for silent comedy fans. Or If you like comedy shorts, you're absolutely going to love this. Stan's early comedy persona was much different from the Stan that we know from his Laurel and Hardy days. Because in these early films, he grins a lot and could be quite a, a, quite a prankster. His best solo comedies were the ones where he parodies other films like the ridiculous When Nights Were Cold from 1923. Oliver Hardy went by the name Babe off-screen, and he's credited that way in some of his films. Most of the time, he was the comic villain in his early films. And one of the joys of this set is seeing Stan and Babe support other lesser comedians. Babe Hardy appears with Charlie Chaplin imitator Billy West, and they both appear in films with Larry Seaman. Now, not every film on this set is good, and we even get a serial chapter with Hardy in it. The film scores are by Neil Brand, Serge Bromberg, Dr. Philip Carley, Antonio Coppola, Eric Leguin, Frederick Hodges, Ben Modell, Andrew Simpson, and Donald Sozin. So you have a cornucopia of all of the best of silent film accompanists in the world, I guess. There's an excellent booklet by Rob Stone from the Library of Congress that it contains notes on each film. And if you really like these films, I can highly recommend his book, Laurel or Hardy. 
And finally, we get an image gallery with all kinds of photos from the films. Yeah, this, I mean, this is an example of how a film release can amount to real scholarship. Uh, we're going to see people write about Laurel and Hardy's early days based on the access that this set gives them to such a picture of their surviving early work. So that's a really cool thing. I mean, it's not just about, you know, hey, now I have some comedies to watch, but real, real scholarship can come out of this. Yeah, you just got to have a lot of time to watch it all. So. <laughs> That's true. Take a week off work. <laughs> all right, so number two. it's It's been all the way back to number 10 since we talked about a film noir. There's so many candidates for talking about an American film noir this year. Um, I picked one. It's a little bit of a sentimental favorite for me because I remember watching it on the Cash Calls movie on Channel 10 in Wichita when I was growing up and not seeing it since. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to see would it hold up. And, and it has a, the kind of plot that has the potential to be really silly, which is that the actual devil is a character in this movie. Hear him now, coming closer and closer and closer. A man from the shadows on a dark and deadly errand, bringing a strange temptation to all who cross his path. What do you want? A woman, quite beautiful, wearing sapphires and silk sable. What are you talking about? Why don't you come along? Find out. Paramount takes you down the dark, foreboding corridors of an uncharted path of adventure, following the footsteps of the screen's most extraordinary character from the dives of the waterfront to the governor's mansion. Nick Beale, who knew every woman's strength and every man's weakness, who made love a weapon more dangerous than a loaded gun. The movie is called Alias Nick Beale, Beale as in Beelzebub, and it stars Ray Moland as a devil who is summoned when Thomas Mitchell, who's kind of a reform politician, you know, is talking about the local, the gangland boss and says, I'd give my soul to catch that guy. And boom, all of a sudden there's Ray Milland. Well, the mix of noir and this kind of 40s, you know, metaphysical, you know, religious stuff is carried off surprisingly well. It kind of reminded me of The Uninvited, the horror movie that, mm -hmm. uh, or the ghost movie that yes. Milan made around the same time. Um, this was actually the next film that Milan and director John Farrow made after The Big Clock, which was uh, one of the films we cited two years ago. And it's a worthy follow-up. I mean, it's not quite as stylish and, you know, perfect of its type. But I've, I found it a really interesting film that successfully makes you believe that the devil could exist in this sort of, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, whoever world. Um, you know, so, I mean, a fun, a fun film to get to see again and be pleased that it uh, held up after all this time. And what distributor put this one out? It's from Kino, and there aren't so there aren't a lot of extras. But uh, the one that it does have is a commentary track by none other than Eddie Muller again. So that's pretty cool. Well, now we're up to our number one. Our pick number again. one. This is the highest point in all our land, mighty Mount Whitney, looming above the wilderness with the strange silence of eternity. Yet stranger still. 
is the mission of destiny that brings men to this forbidding barrier. Held at bay by the most dangerous killer since Dillinger. Look at him up there. What's the matter, Yellow? Come and get me, buddy. Come and get me. He's trapped because man can't climb any higher and men never came any tougher. But what brought him here? What made him that way? Was it Marie? Taxi dancer? Gangster's companion? Yet underneath it all, just a woman with a hungry heart. Oh, Roy, please don't send me back to L.A. Let me stay. I want to be with you, Roy. Please let me stay, please. My number one pick is a crime drama starring Ida Lupino. No, really. <laughs> Although Humphrey Bogart gives a powerful, dynamic performance as outlaw Roy Earl, Warner Brothers was afraid to bill him as the star of High Sierra. So Ms. Lupino got top billing. Way back in Petrified Forest, that was supposed to be Humphrey Bogart's breakout role, but he still languished in mostly villain parts at Warner Brothers for several years until this film and his next one, The Maltese Falcon, shot him to the top ranks of performers. And turning this role down was one of the many dumb decisions that George Raft made. Now, director Raoul Walsh handles the suspenseful action scenes perfectly, yet he and Bogart make his character Roy Earl a likable guy, and his scenes with Lupino are quite touching. It's not quite a film noir. It's really a late gangster film tragedy. But amazingly, Raoul Walsh remade this film as Colorado Territory a few years later in 1949. This time, Joel McRae is a cowboy who sprung from jail for one more train robbery. My name is Wes McQueen, and there's a price on my head. I'm up here on one of the highest peaks in the Colorado Territory, the city of the moon, a ghost city just hanging in space above the wilderness, with no way to get out except one. And 50 men betting their lives I can't make it. Come on now! Come and get me. Yes, yeah, somebody's always been trying to get me. But where did it all begin? Where does it end? What really brought me here? The basic outline of the story is the same, but this time it has much more of a film noir edge to it. In the original film, Bogart's accomplices are inept gangsters, but in this film they try to double-cross McRae at every turn. In Lupino's gangster mole is, is a tough but sweet woman, but don't mess with Virginia Mayo in the remake. <laughs> and in the original film, Joan Leslie is young and immature, but in the later film, Dorothy Malone is quite mercenary in the exact same part. There's a whole bunch of extras on this disc. The best one is a documentary called The True Adventures of Raoul Walsh. There's also a British TV documentary on Bogart's career, but if you haven't seen a lot of his films, don't watch it because it gives away the climax of almost all of his best films. And then African-American actor Willie Best has a comedy relief role in High Sierra that's a slightly stereotyped, but it's really not that bad. So Criterion provides us with an overview of his career. And we get treated to a discussion between archivist and writer Dave Kerr and writer Farron Smith Nime on the film. And finally, there's an interview. It's an audio interview with pictures of screenwriter W.R. Burnett, a radio adaption from 1944, trailers, and a booklet with an essay by Imogene Sarah Smith again. <laughs> Although Criterion offers this as a uh, disc set of High Sierra, to me it's a, it's a release of Colorado Territory, which I think is the better movie. I mean, High Sierra is important in terms of the evolution of uh, Bogart's career. I mean, the next thing he was going to do was the Maltese Falcon. But just as, as a movie, Colorado Territory is 
tougher and meaner and really well made. I liked it a lot. It's interesting. I mean, they spent the big bucks on restoring uh, High Sierra, but for Colorado Territory, I mean, they did a really nice transfer, but they didn't do all the cleanup stuff. So you kind of get a chance to see what those films are like when they still have the speckles and stuff that uh, disappear these days in digital restoration. Yeah, but it's really sharp. I mean, it must have been very close to the original negative, if not the original negative. And I got to tell you, it's so sharp that when Virginia Mayo looks at you, her blue eyes, they like sear right into my brain, (laughs) even though it's a black and white film. I I was blown away by Colorado Territory because I'd never even heard of it before. I agree that it's a really good movie. I like Joel McRae, and he's good in this film, but I don't think he comes across as powerfully as Bogart does in the original High Sierra. He actually wasn't even supposed to star in this film. Rock Hudson was originally going to star in the film, but in the documentary, uh, Raoul Walsh talks about Rock Hudson kept showing up to, uh, late on set, and he wasn't didn't have his lines memorized, and so he got fired a few days into the film, and Joel McRae was a good friend of Ralph's, Walsh, so um, he got the part instead. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that. I mean, a number of Criterion movies that we could have picked. I mean, the, the obvious omission, considering the remake that's coming out, is that they put out Nightmare Alley this year, and that yeah. looks really nice as well. But I agree. I mean, the High Sierra, Colorado Territory, Double Bill is a really high-quality one and a, and a good choice for number one. And, and uh, one thing I really liked about Colorado Territory is it really builds the suspense more. Uh, High Sierra is more about Roy Earl's character, Bogart's character. Colorado Territory is all about all of the bad things that are about to happen to Joel McRae. <laughs> and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And he, he gets out of a few of them, but he can't get out of all of them. <laughs> Spoken like a true noir. Human emotion, humanity itself, painted against the majestic canvas of High Sierra. Links for our top 10 in vintage movies on physical media will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Shh. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. I knew I should have taken that left coin at Albuquerque. Into Las Vegas, San Bernardino. Of course, you realize this means war. The could thou directest me to Robin Hood's uh, hideout? I would fail to join me up with his band of. Look no further, good friar. I am Robin Hood. Oh, uh, can't, uh, cut it out. I'm, I'm serious. Some father I've got, neglecting my education as a pussycat. Oh, suffer and suck a test, son. How can I teach you how to catch mice when there are no mice in the house? Great horny toes. A trespasser. Getting footy prints all over my desert. Yeah, mule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We live in the world Bugs Bunny made. 
80-some years of exposure to Warner Brothers cartoons, from the earliest works of Tex Avery and Fritz Freeling to another Space Jam movie just this year, have shaped all of our comedic sensibilities, as well as what the point of drawings that move on film is. That's what TV and media critic Jamie Weinman explores in his book Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, The Unauthorized Biography of Looney Tunes, from Sutherland House. It's both a history of the studio's development and an examination of the cultural legacy of these cartoons we all know so well. I started by asking Jamie Weinman why he chose to write a biography of a cartoon series. Well, originally I was going to write a book on popular culture and and branding and marketing and how um, uh, Looney Tunes and other franchises had trouble surviving um, as um, as popular franchises. And as I got into it, I felt it was dull and I felt that it was depressing. And so my publisher, who was interested in, in the book, said that, why don't we just work on a Looney Tunes book and you talk about the cartoons which you love and the characters you love and how they developed. And so uh, while I felt it was important to have uh, you know, some material about uh, their afterlife because it's on television and it's things like Space Jam because it is a big part of their history, the focus just moved to talking about stuff I love to talk about and, and being enthusiastic about things I love. And I think I'm a better writer when I write about things I love. And there are very few things in popular culture I love more than classic Warner Brothers cartoons. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking about what your book talks about, Looney Tunes kind of fading a bit in recent years. And yet at the same time, I mean, I think of the things that are more current, you know, the the Simpsons and South Parks and, and whatever. And it's like, well, they're not exactly doing what Looney Tunes does, but there's no way that they would exist without Looney Tunes having come first. That That sensibility of humor... In animation, I I just if it had been Disney the whole time, we wouldn't have that. I agree. I I think that uh, I I talk a little bit about uh, the impact Looney Tunes had on popular culture. For example, Blazing Saddles is really uh, almost a Bugs Bunny movie with Cleavon Little as Bugs Bunny, and, <laughs> right. um, and there are there are definitely a lot of shows and uh, and works that that have the influence of Looney Tunes comedy whether it, uh, especially the use of violence as comedy which uh, Tex Avery and his the other directors at Warner Brothers really turned into an art um and um and so yes i, I think uh, even if someone has never seen a cart one of these cartoons which is actually kind of unlikely but it, it, let's say somebody hadn't seen any of them they would they would still be be familiar with some of the tropes of looney tunes like and dropping anvils on people just right. because it's everywhere <laughs> i was just thinking too it's like nobody lifts pianos up the sides of skyscrapers anymore you know i, I haven't seen that in real life but uh it apparently was a major hazard at one if time. you think about it uh, the, the, every, everything in, in these cartoons is sort of based on something that might have been part of real life, not necessarily uh, during the lifetimes of the people who made them, uh, maybe uh, in older times or maybe in movies they'd seen. But almost everything you see can be traced back to something sort of real, like moving, the, the ways of moving a piano out of an apartment building. Uh, and uh, that, that, and even I think I've even seen a description of why 
that where the origin of the anvil gag might have been, but I can't <laughs> right. remember exactly. But it's uh, that's one of the interesting things about researching uh, these cartoons is that you can find something real at the at the root of everything, no matter how ridiculous it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All those eighth floor blacksmith shops that had anvils up on the the yeah. upper floors. <laughs> I mean, bringing up Disney, that's certainly the context in which the Warner Brothers animation studio got going was that, you know, Disney ruled the world and whatever you did, you were trying to do what he was doing. So let's talk about first, you know, kind of that evolution, how Warner Brothers worked their way slowly to having their own style and giving cartoons a different reason for being. Sure. As uh, as you mentioned, Disney was always the industry leader. He was the he, he was the one who did everything first, or at least popularized everything first, and everybody was following him. So obviously, Mickey Mouse uh, was the inspiration for the first Warner Brothers cartoon star, Bosco, who was basically a bootleg version of Mickey Mouse, as a lot of characters were. Then. Um, uh, the, the the Warner Brothers studio started with people who had worked for Disney, Hugh Harmon and Rudolph Ising, and then later on brought in other Disney people, uh, most notably Carl Stalling, who had been Disney's music director for a while, and then wound up uh, at Warner Brothers perfecting the, music, uh, the musical style he had almost invented for cartoon scoring. Everyone was looking to Disney not only for technical innovations, because whatever he did, they were going to learn from, but also for character ideas or just the general, um, the general ideas about what kind of subject matter would make a good cartoon. So Disney did not invent the idea of doing fairy tales as cartoons, but the dominance of fairy tales, the fact that there are so many Three Little Pigs and Red Riding Hood cartoons uh, everywhere, comes to a certain extent from what Disney had uh, laid down as acceptable. And as I mentioned, the, uh, the character of Bugs Bunny is sort of influenced in personality and design by Max Hare, who is a, a character in Disney's uh, The Tortoise and the Hare. Uh, Max Hare is named after Max Hare, the boxer, by the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, because everything in these cartoons is a, is a reference to something. And, and, the, and the other um, side of it is that there are a lot of what Warner Brothers did is a reaction against Disney, especially Tex Avery is almost is often considered the anti-Disney. He didn't do it at Warner Brothers, but shortly after he left, he, he did a cartoon with a search with this cute little squirrel who looks exactly like a Disney type of cute character running, uh, romping through the forest. And then a mean, nasty, cartoony, violent squirrel beats him up. And that's, uh, that, that sort of sums up the Tex Avery style and the style he bequeathed to Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers followed Tex Avery's lead even after he left. Yeah, no, I, I was just thinking about that sequence today. And, it, you know, it's a pretty transparent idea of his own thinkings about the kind of cartoons that people were expecting him to make. So, yeah, Avery, yeah. Avery is kind of the, you know, the, the quintessential figure in that early period. Although, you know, for somebody like me, I mean, I t he tended to be someone I discovered later because I tended to see the after 1948 bunch of cartoons. Sure. It was long after he had left Warner brothers, but yeah, let's talk. So let's talk about, um, Avery's, I mean, what was his development and how he approached cartoons in the mid thirties? 
Avery was a, um, it's a little hard to know exactly where his style came from because we can't get into the the heads of these people or know exactly what they were uh, watching. But he started becoming very interested in the idea of taking um, uh, cartoon gags to, uh, to an extreme. And he also, which is, and he also liked the idea of parodying things that people might've seen in other cartoons or in newsreels or, or in, uh, in testing the boundaries of, um, of the medium, like having a character run to the, run and almost fall off the film or, or having the film break in the middle or, or, or making the audience think they were seeing something, uh, someone stand up and, and be seen in silhouette. And, uh, while, uh, he, uh, the interesting thing about him is that his Warner Brothers work is actually kind of slow compared to what he would do at MGM and also what other Warner Brothers would do, uh, directors would do after he left. So he was still in the process of perfecting the style um, uh, when he left. And uh, there's a lot of things that he didn't create on his own. So and he, uh, they, because the, he wasn't all that interested in characterization, which became a bigger part of the Warner Brothers cartoon style. But what he was able to do and was able to inspire uh, his younger colleagues to do was to make gags out of um, uh, out of things that are weird or unnatural or violent or just break the rules of whatever the audience has come to expect. Uh, one of my favorite moments in his um, in his work at Warner Brothers is in this parody of travel log cartoons, and it's just the um, the narrator says, "Here is a close up of a frog croaking," and we cut to a um, a very realistic looking frog who then immediately pulls out a gun and shoots himself in the head and dies, and that's uh, and and then to, as the capper while the audience is laughing, we, uh, the, he imitates a. Um, an old thing where the projectionist would put a, um, a sign in front of the uh, projector to, broad, to, to project on the screen. And it says, uh, the management is not responsible for the puns used in this picture. And that's, uh, that, that's very much an Avery gag. It, 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 it combines a lot of his preoccupations like violence, parodying standard types of film like a travelogue, um, pu- uh, puns, and self-deprecation and um, and all those uh, elements became a huge part of the Warner Brothers cartoon style that idea that this is this is a, we're going to subvert what you've seen elsewhere we're going to remind you that you're watching a film and not uh, and have the the actors uh, play directly to the audience and we're going to be very violent yeah no i think that's in some ways that's maybe the 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 central uh, you know, philosophical distinction with Warner Brothers cartoons is that you know reflexivity on the medium. Uh, that one that you you know Disney's trying to do things in in a form of hyper realism. I mean, it may be a bunch of animals playing at a band concert, but when a storm starts picking them up, he's trying to evoke what a tornado really looks like, and 
Avery, you know, he he knows he's it's a movie, and you can make fun of it being a movie. His his characters, you know, or the Warner Brothers characters eventually become movie stars in their own right. We see them at the studio, you know, we see them reading scripts or arguing with the the producer or things like that. So it's a self awareness about the medium that doesn't really exist in other cartoons although who knows there may be heckle and jekyll cartoons that i have not seen that that have all that but i doubt it there, there are a lot of cartoons and i think uh, a, a larger book might have uh, like um like leonard malton's of mice and magic would go into a little more into the differences between the various cartoon studios but it, it is true that uh, warner brothers became known for this and Every, a, a lot of other uh, cartoon studios tried to do what they were doing, but most of them didn't succeed, uh, beca- uh, except, again, except for MGM because of Peck Avery's influence. Uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult style to pull off because the, 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 uh, the, the two things it's known for, self-reflexivity and violence, can really backfire if they're not done absolutely right. So there's nothing more annoying than someone who will not stick to the plot because they're constantly breaking the fourth wall and there's nothing more unfunny than a violent gag that just seems cruel. So it's, it's a style that they made it look easy, but it actually requires an incredible deafness. And, uh, and I think one theme of the book is that it's been very hard to replicate that style because it's almost, impossible to explain how it works and i don't even think the um, the, the people who made the cartoons could fully explain how they made it funny they yeah did it <laughs> yeah why why it's funny to have a fish with peter laurie's face suddenly say now i've seen everything and shoot himself yeah <laughs> yeah and that's the ultimate in some ways that's the ultimate warner brothers gag in in, in just in, in the not only in the sense that it, it combines all so many of their preoccupations into one but the fact that it happens in the middle of a, a relatively straight adaptation of Dr. Seuss's or uh, Horton Hatch's leg. So that's, yeah. that's not in the book, but they, they added it basically because, well, if you're going to do, I think Leon Schlesinger or someone, or the, the producer Leon Schlesinger or someone apparently said, we'll let you do it, but you have to put in some, you know, some Warner Brothers gags to let them know that uh, there's uh, one of our <laughs> cartoons. So yeah. So this, this this thing that uh, that happens right in the middle of what is otherwise kind of an arty or uh, ambitious film, but never too arty or never too ambitious. You got to give the people what they want, and what they want is violence. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about Leon Schlesinger, the much maligned Leon Schlesinger, who I don't think anybody thinks was an artistic genius, but he seemed somehow to you know, just foster the right environment for many years at, at Warner Brothers, you know, at Termite Terrace. Yeah. Um, so he must have had something going for him, even if, uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if everybody yeah. makes jokes about him. Uh, I, I think a lot of people respected him. Uh, my impression is that his, his reputation is a little less than it might have been because Chuck Jones was the most, uh, the, the, uh, the, the most interviewed director and I think the longest living and, he did not like Schlesinger personally, but then again, he didn't really like any producers he worked yeah. with. So he was, uh, and um, the others, I think, uh, had some more respect for him. They did not think he was an artistic genius, but they, they he didn't pretend to be. His um, he he was a guy who had started out in uh, making title cards for silent movies and got into animation in part because 
silent movies were, were, were on their way out and he needed to find a new business. And, um, and what happened was that somehow, I, I, it's hard to know exactly how, but he was able to pull together some very talented people and he or whoever was make, helping him make the decisions had very good instincts about who would who to, to choose as director. Because he was not a hands-on producer, I think he created an atmosphere where a director had to learn to think like a producer. Uh, directors of short cartoons at Disney, they knew they, they were not producers. They had very little artistic control over what was going on. And while there are some very funny Disney shorts, the, the directors were not really auteurs. They, were not, they didn't necessarily have a distinctive style. The later Warner Brothers directors, the ones who joined later, like most notably Bob McKimson, were a little more like that. They were not really producers. They were they were directors who were trying to fit into the the, the prevailing style. But earlier on, there was no there was no one to guide them except maybe Avery, and then he left. So these directors were on their own to determine what made a good story what made a good character, what made a good gag. It was all something they had to learn um, and uh, and create their own ideas about. And so I think Schlesinger fostered an atmosphere where you had to you, you had to take responsibility for uh, for everything that made a cartoon funny and you had to have very strong ideas about what made a cartoon funny because no one else was going to tell you. And that uh, and the other thing is that he fostered a competitive atmosphere. The, so people know that Chuck Jones did not like Bob Clampett and that the two of them uh, were not, didn't get along very well. And I think that's, um, uh, that's undoubtedly true, but it also, I think, helped them both to be better directors because they had to outdo each other. They were always afraid, I think, that one of the units would get cut or that they would be bumped down to the fourth unit, which was the one that was not usually allowed to make Bugs Bunny cartoons, which was, uh, and the, um, and so this competition to make the funniest cartoons and save their jobs made them funnier because they had to be to survive. They had, uh, if, if they went into a movie theater and the audience was not laughing, they were doomed. Yeah. So that, um, and I don't think that was necessarily the case at Disney if only because Disney himself would take responsibility for it. Yeah, no, it seems like, you know, if there were auteur figures at Disney, it was certain animators were known for doing certain things, you know, yeah. uh, doing Monstro the Whale and other big characters. Yeah. It's it's not like they yeah. had an overall vision of the whole movie. That was Walt's business. Well, yeah, tell me who the... Who were the the units then? Um, it was Avery, first of all. The, the, the units sort of went that um, shifted around a few times, and I don't, I, I, I'm afraid I don't always remember who had a unit at any one particular time. By the time Avery, when Avery left in 1941, it was I think it was Avery, uh, jo uh, Chuck Jones, Frizz Freeling, and then Bob Clampett had the unit, which made the black and white cartoons. Then Tex Avery left, and Bob Clampett took over his unit. So if you've seen uh, the cartoon Wabbit Trouble, which became famous for the shot of Bugs Bunny looking really fat, which was somehow dubbed Big Chungus and became the, one of the biggest memes of the last couple of years, that's a cartoon that Avery was developing or possibly even starting before he left, and, and Clampett took over and directed it. By 
a couple of years later, when when all the cartoons went to color, uh, then the 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 four units were uh, Bob Clampett, Chuck Jones, Frizz Freeling, and Frank Cashlin, who had the pork unit and was pretty vocal about his disappointment at not having to make so many Porky Pig cartoons and only a couple of Bugs Bunnies. But the um, so that was probably when the when the studio was collectively at its strongest because there were no weak links in the four units. You couldn't really say that one of them was the best. Later on, there were comings and goings, and eventually the the four units were reduced to three as part of the downsizing that took place in the late 40s. And then until the end of the studio, it was three units, Chuck Jones, Frizz Freeling, Bob McKimson. And that's, uh, that was the basic uh, arrangement for for the 50s and 60s when uh, where where the cartoon he saw on Saturday mornings mostly came from. Yeah, so I mean it's interesting you you might think that the units would be tied to particular characters but that wasn't the case at all. Um everybody you know once a character was developed it kind of had a life of its own and people were competing for the chance to work with him if they liked the character. It's a, it seems like it's a bit of both. So there were some characters who everyone used Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig uh, and Sylvester for some reason, even though uh, they, uh, he was he was a character everybody could use and everyone did use. And then there were other characters who were sort of had a particular unit had dibs on. So Chris Freeling created Yosemite Sam, and he was the only one who used Yosemite Sam. I don't really know if someone else could have used it, probably, but nobody was going to borrow Sam from Freeling. I guess because then he would have asked to borrow their characters, and <laughs> so it was, there was a certain proprietary interest in some characters and some series. So uh, there's a cartoon called Mississippi Hare, where where Bugs Bunny goes up against this Southern gentleman character, with and he's just he he's exactly like Yosemite Sam. He he's even uh, first seen you know shooting his guns off like Yosemite Sam, saying, "I'm the I'm the poker playing a sombre or whatever." They, they just, just, <laughs> But they they could not just borrow Yosemite Sam. They had to create this other character who's exactly like him. It's it's a very strange thing. But I, I again I assume it's just it, it was just sort of an unspoken deal that we'll leave your characters alone if you leave ours alone. Yeah. So um, I mean, the first one to really break through, which is funny because he's kind of the straight man later on, is Porky Pig. Um, yeah. And what was appealing about Porky? Uh, he went through a few. Um, um, versions. So uh, originally he was quite fat, and then uh, there are a couple of cartoons where he's an adult, uh, and then he's he's a bit more like a child. And he went through you know, various iterations with different directors. I think it's just that uh, he caught on, possibly just because of the stutter. Was uh, uh, even though it's um, it, can, it can be irritating. It's like Frank Cashman says, "Who wants to see the damn pig? It takes him so long to talk." But the the, the, the shutter at least gave him something unique, uh, uh, that, or or that wasn't all that familiar from other cartoon characters. And he sort of had a built-in joke of of trying to say one word and then substituting another one. Right. I, I should have got a copy to a dog, and um, and that those two things seemed to make him catch on, I guess. And they were sort of desperate because they needed a, uh, a funny animal character and, and Corky caught on enough that he became their funny animal character and their, their Mickey mouse for a few years. And, um, and they, you know, as you say, he's, he's 
he's kind of a straight man, even more so than Nikki, because Nikki at least had an earlier period when he was a little more mischief maker. But uh, uh, but that's okay. The, the directors would just have funny things going on around him and uh, make him the straight man, and uh, that worked for a while. And it, of course, led to the creation of Daffy Duck in a Porky Pig cartoon where Porky was the straight man to this new guy. And it led to this endless series uh, of cartoons for the next few years where they tried to try out some other character as a foil for Porky Pig. And none of them caught on the way Daffy did, but they, they just kept trying. Yeah, Daffy is an interesting one because, I mean, as you point out, he, there's really two Daffys. They're pretty distinct. Um, it's sort of yeah. like Darren's on Bewitched or something. Uh, yeah. He, uh, the early one is genuinely Daffy, and the later right. one is, is misanthropic and can can try and pull pranks or ways of getting other people theoretically killed, cartoon killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, things like that. Though, of course, like the later Wiley e. Coyote, they never work for him. Um, right. So how, what was what was the evolution of Daffy? Well, he starts out in that cartoon called Porky's Duck Hunt, this crazy duck who's, who can't stick to the script and is you know, constantly talking about how insane and dangerous he is. And uh, the, uh, the idea of, of a character who's just so insane, you don't know what he's going to do next, seemed to catch on. And, uh, and Daffy became a star for uh, quite a few years. And there are elements of his later characterization in some of his earlier cartoons, most famously the live-action animation hybrid cartoon from 1940 called um, You Ought to Be in Pictures, where the premise is that Daffy manipulates Porky into leaving and start trying his luck on live action features and then plots to take over Porky's status as the, uh, the flagship star for Leon Schlesinger. So that, that is close to what Daffy would later become. Uh, and, and, but it was not uh, a huge part of his character until the 1950s. And by the 1950s, that kind of crazy bounding lunatic character was out of fashion. Woody Woodpecker, who started out as a, basically a Daffy clone, complete with a Mel Blanc voice, had been toned down a lot. Daffy had been toned down somewhat, and I think they were just looking around for other things he could do. And first they came up with the idea of him pretending to be someone else. So starting with Dick Tracy, and then came you know, Scarlet Pimpernel and the Western hero, and that became a very useful thing for them to just put him in a costume and make him be this, uh, this familiar pop culture hero, but nothing happens quite the way it does for those other heroes. Uh, you know, his trademark line from the Scarlet Pumpernickel is falls down. It's just funny. That never happened to Errol Flynn. Yeah. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's something we can all identify with as being someone who's seen all these movies and read all these books about heroes, but it doesn't work for us. And the other thing they came up with was, sort of the, the unusual idea of putting him in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Usually Bugs did not cross over with, with characters. And in fact, characters rarely crossed over with, with the exception of a character like Sylvester, who could be in anyone's cartoons, or Porky and Daffy, who, were, who started out together, so they often teamed up. But Bugs never teamed up with anybody. And so it was, it, it was a surprise when Daffy first appeared in something that had, that had been billed as a Bugs Bunny cartoon that allowed them to play on the idea that Daffy and Bugs are both trying to outsmart Elmer and they're also trying to outsmart each other. 
Daffy is not as dumb as Elmer, but he's not as smart as Bugs. And so um, he's smart enough to know that what mind games Bugs is playing on him with, but he's not smart enough to, or, or he's too emotional to just stop and think twice before he, he speaks. So he always says the wrong thing just because he knows, he knows he's what he's doing wrong, but he's just so angry. He can't stop himself from saying duck season as the opposite of right. uh, Bugs saying <laughs> season. Yeah. And that again was a very interesting and unique concept, which like a lot of cartoon concepts has been flattened out from repetition. So that there are, there are several really good Daffy Bugs cartoons, but quite actually very few. Uh, so a lot of the Daffy Bugs cartoons just have Daffy as a straight up villain and later they make him just kind of like this annoying, pathetic foil who's just jealous of Bugs all the time. So, um, but we should not lose sight of how fresh and funny it was when it started out, uh, though it's, um, it's actually kind of amazing that those cartoons hold up so well after we've been subjected to so many inferior imitations. Right. Yeah. Now, Bugs is interesting. It's funny. I've always kind of associated Bugs with Humphrey Bogart specifically. Uh, not that they're particularly close resemblances, but I don't know. It's like they they rose to stardom about the same time in the way that Bogart sort of broke out of playing, you know, the the gangster who's not as smart as he thinks he is and gets killed by uh, Jimmy Cagney in the next to last reel. And then suddenly he's the guy in the Maltese Falcon in Casablanca and is clearly very savvy, a smart character. Um, and Bugs just kind of seems the same way. You know, he knows, he knows how the world works and he's got that kind of urban, you know, the Brooklyn accent, which, you know, as you point out in the book, is such an odd detail for a cartoon character. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's an, an accurate summary. I, I hadn't really thought of the Bogart comparison, but it, it, it does make sense, especially because Bogart turns up as a cameo in at least two famous right. uh, moments. <laughs> A funny cartoon, and uh, he's uh, uh, he is unusual because he's he's so intelligent and he's so confident, and he does he, he always seems so in control. And it, it, though it's it can be funny to see him not be in control because when when he, when he whenever he's not he, whenever he doesn't know what's going to happen next, he can really lose it, and he can he, he can get scared. There's always a moment in a cartoon where things something happens that he didn't expect to happen, and then he, he genuinely is scared for a moment, and you feel like this villain could actually beat him if he were, if only he weren't so dumb. And, but, uh, but, but the, his superpower, if he has one, is just that he's, that he's smart and everyone around him is so dumb. And that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's an interesting fantasy to have because we usually fantasize about Superman, uh, someone who is more powerful than everyone else. Buzz isn't really that. He's not even that much more, he doesn't even have that much more access to cartoon superpowers, so-called cartoon superpowers, as any other character has. But what he has is a knowledge of uh, of the conventions that he's operating on, and a knowledge of the psychology of his opponents. So, so many of his gags revolve around the idea that if he says one thing, the other person will say the opposite and not even think about what they're saying. That's there's like there's a gag like that in so many of different Bugs cartoons, and it's very much a trademark gag of his. It's that it, it, it's him being smart enough to understand that uh, the way humans behave. And yeah, the, I think the, the the urban accent is 
the the New York accent is is definitely an interesting trademark. I don't know exactly how they came up with the idea, but it does. It may just be the contrast of Bugs, the woodland creature, because he's almost always seen living in a hole in the forest. He does not live in a house. He doesn't wear clothes. He is he, he's an animal. And yet he's an animal who talks like he's uh, like a guy from the city. So uh, maybe the, just the contrast in itself is funny or or, or maybe it just signal maybe it just signals that he knows of a world beyond the forest and um, and that's why you know, you shouldn't underestimate him the way you underestimate other woodland creatures yeah well i also think i mean maybe this is partly where i get the bogart comparison it was just a very 40s attitude i think particularly during the war you know the germans may have had enormous power and self-confidence but we had the ability to, to laugh at them i mean think of some of the lines in casablanca you know where bogart's saying ah there are parts of new york i wouldn't advise even the german army to to invade yeah. you know that kind of deprecating attitude you know is very much like bug sense of humor and it just seems to fit the american spirit of the time so well yeah i think that, yeah, i think you're absolutely right that one reason he took off is that wise guy attitude he, he just such an american character and such a way you know sort of the way the the best of the way americans think of themselves the the, the best you know the uh, he's, he's the american self-conception at his best he's someone who's smart not intellectual someone who has a sense of humor and can laugh at you know, uh, at people who take themselves too seriously. And uh, that the fact that he is so American may help explain why I don't think he's quite as translatable outside uh, America and uh, Canada as some other characters might be. So I think I think Tom and Jerry have more global popularity, partly because they don't speak, but partly because they're not uh, they're not so specifically American and um there uh, and culturally, I'm not sure that the, the bugs translates particularly well all over the world. So I'm not saying he's unpopular all over the world, but he is sort of very. There is something very American about him that is hard to convey. I think uh, outside places that are really marinated in American culture. Now we get into the the uh, the fifties, and to me, I mean, this is kind of the period where Chuck Jones becomes ascendant. And his sensibility is so reflected in the package of cartoons that we all saw on Saturday mornings. And if I should probably explain what's going on there is Warner Brothers sold off a lot of their uh, content and the pre-1948 cartoons, they were seen on TV, but it tended to be on local stations. Uh, in my hometown, there was a guy who called himself Freddy Fudd because he was going to show us the adventures of his nephew, Elmer, and other things like that. And, you know, broadcast the cartoons from a treehouse, that sort of thing. Uh, where the the after-48 cartoons were on... Uh, the various uh, national networks on initially as a primetime show, wasn't it? Yes, it was the Bugs Bunny. Car, uh, the, the so the Bugs Bunny show was something. The uh, in, it started out in primetime, which uh, Warner Brothers produced for ABC, which was uh, it, the uh, um, cartoons it still owned from the post nineteen forty eight package. Uh, with bookends uh, newly animated by the, by the animation staff, which was still uh, operating at the time. And 
uh, eventually the the show was removed from prime time and found a better home on Saturday morning where it ran in one form or another until the 90s. Yeah, my, certainly my whole childhood, yeah. Yeah. And then there were these other packages that were more I think more like more usually seen in local syndication which were some of them were from the 1948 pre-1948 package which was owned by uh, a different company. Some of them were licensed out by Warner Brothers. There were just a lot of cartoons and a lot of different packages of cartoons out there. So you you would have different versions of the characters and different ver- different packages of cartoons on two different stations in one town or maybe even three. And that that I think helped to explain why Warner Brothers cartoons so saturated popular culture because they were everywhere. Right, and and where we all learned about scrap iron and and uh, and Ben Blue and things like that, you know the mm-hmm. the bits of forgotten pop culture that we all carry with us. Um, all right, so it's interesting. Jones was the most sentimental and Disney-like for a long time. I mean, if there was a cartoon about a cute little kitten, that was Jones. And then suddenly, at some point, he just becomes the master of dry, deadpan humor. You know, an eyebrow goes up, and that's the capper on the gag, that sort of thing. Yeah. How did that happen? (laughs) What went on Um, with the guy? Nothing necessarily went on with him. He just had to learn sort of on his feet uh, as when he started out, uh, he was, uh, he was new to directing and he was working with a style that was not really perfected yet. And he just sort of gravitated towards a more Disney sentimental type of style. And, uh, and I think kind of slower pace, he was interested in expressions and gestures and unusual ideas about backgrounds. And so he was trying to work out his style as, as he went and as time went on he started to get funnier and uh, and you know again there was this there was this competitive spirit and the knowledge that your cartoons were not getting laughs you were not going there was plenty of people who could replace you he learned to get funnier he learned to um uh, to teach his animators to um uh, uh, to be more to keep that you know fluid disney style animation but also be you know punchier and that took time to develop but it also shows that the the style of of the studio as a whole sort of influences the director. So Jones, uh, Chuck Jones's stuff after he left Warner Brothers is not as funny as what he did at, at the Roadrunner or, or or Bugs Bunny. It, and, and and some of the slowness and the cuteness sort of seeps right back into his uh, to his work after he leaves Warner Brothers, just because the the, the studio was influencing his style and. So the style he developed to get last was sort of something that was, I think, a little bit of, again, a bit of a reaction to Disney because Disney's style was so fluid and so um, and, and so obsessed with the idea of um, of hand gestures, of, of gestures that were sort of where they were fluid and beautiful and the whole body moving in a, in a um, in kind of an, uh, an expressive and emphatic way and and Jones was one of those people who, who was experimenting with the idea of no, wait, wait a minute, what if, what if they move in a way that you can't move in real life? Or maybe what if they move suddenly? Or what if they just their whole body is immobile but they wiggle their eyebrow or something? And that's um, and, and and these were ideas that he was working out and which eventually influenced uh, the sort of artsier cartoons made by uh, United UPA United Productions of America, which and their influence seeped right back into Warner Brothers, so because everyone steals from everyone else, and so 
what we saw by the by the time he reached maturity in the four in the forties, and especially by the time he got Mike Maltese as his writer, which I think it created a golden period for both of for, for both of them, but particularly for Jones. He had a style that happened to work very well with the lower budgets that uh, that were starting to be imposed on uh, animation because the movie studio system was no longer booming, so there was no, uh, they did not have as much money as they had to throw around, and they never had all that much at Warner Brothers because it was not the big budget studio. So what Jones was able to do is he was, as the, the budgets got a bit lower and the cartoons got a bit shorter, he was able to tell good stories because he was able to convey so much with so little. So the idea of Bugs wriggling his eyebrows to, to take us into his confidence and call our attention to what he's going to do next was something that could happen very quickly. You know, classic Chuck Jones cartoons from the 50s is sort of a master class in how to do the most with the little. How to convey things very quickly in a compressed time, time frame. And I think the, that, that's an important part of the Warner Brothers style in general, the work sense of time and the, the idea that things can happen much faster in a cartoon than they can in real life. And, and so he, uh, Chuck Jones is all about these little moments these these quick flashes on a character's face, or Wiley Coyote opening a tiny umbrella just as, before a rock falls on him. Yeah, <laughs> these are these are things that show that something can be funny just because of how fast it happens and how little time it takes for it to happen. All right, so the fifties, and I don't know that there's particularly any really good cartoons after about nineteen sixty, and eventually the unit is shut down, uh, and yet the Warner Brothers cartoon universe you know is out there we just had another movie uh not that i saw it but another space jam movie so it continues on despite a certain amount of corporate neglect really um they don't always treat the things well or make it easy for kids to grow up knowing these characters but yeah what's what's the post uh termite terrace life of of the warner brothers universe it's just trying to deal with the fact that trying to keep the characters alive, even though there's not necessarily any real need to make more ca- cartoons with them because they they have so many. Um, I think uh, one reason I don't get into this in the book, but I think one reason for the extremely, the, you know, the, uh, after the original studio closed down, Warner brothers farmed out some work and made these low budget limited animation cartoons with, some of which had the Roadrunner and some of which had the incredibly weird pairing of Daffy Duck and Speedy Gonzalez. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I've never seen any, I've never seen confirmation of this, but I, 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 the plausible theory that was suggested to me is just they did this because Speedy was popular and Daffy was popular and they didn't have enough cartoons with either one of them. So they, they were just trying to, and same goes with the Roadrunner because Chuck Jones only made one or two every year. So they were just trying to add to the catalog and build up a bigger library of Daffy cartoons and Speedy cartoons and Roadrunner cartoons. That was really the only reason they kept making them. There's certainly no artistic reason to keep making more Roadrunner cartoons. Uh, the, the ones we have kind of, I think, you know, they, they kind of say what they have to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, as time has gone on, it becomes more imperative to create new material because there's less room for reruns on television, especially 
reruns that are not targeted to nostalgic. So, you know, MeTV is great, but it's not, it's obviously not, it's obviously targeted to people who grew up with watching these things on TV already. And, um, and so there's been a need for new material, material that is in high definition and widescreen, or that will be part of the, you know, whatever upgrade technology gets in the future. But they struggle with it because because there's just not that much new you can say about the characters. And also they've been sort of, they're always kind of locked into a certain way of, um, uh, of using them. So the, the thing, I, the point I make is that Daffy changed radically in the fifties and that you, uh, I think uh, uh, revived his popularity, but for many years afterwards, Daffy was sort of frozen in that, particular persona he created in the 50s and he could not change the way he changed in the 50s and so the 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 idea of radically changing a character which saved him originally was no longer something that could be considered so uh, i don't envy anyone who uh, who has to try and say something new about the characters and i think considering that it's kind of amazing that there's been so much uh, enjoyable material uh produced with the characters so if I'm actually a little easy on uh, on what's been made after 1964, including including saying some nice things about Space Jam, I think uh, I, I think they've done quite well for cartoons that are not exactly necessary. <laughs> yeah, I had never heard of this one that you talk about, Blooper Bunny. Uh, which is really good. And it does do something new in that it treats the anime, you know, again, in the reflexivity of the Warner brothers, you know, animation world treats it as, you know, in kind of a cinema verite fashion, which is, you know, something that didn't exist when they were making cartoons in the fifties. Um, you know, so it does feel new and to have kind of a, modernized sense of humor while still being very true to the to the uh Warner you know Warner Brothers feel from the past. I you know I really like that one. So it's not surprising that it got no support and what sat on the shelf for 7 years and then was finally yeah. put on Cartoon Network or something like that. Yeah, they they it was you, you, they wanted something the Warner Brothers executives say, "Oh great, we want something different." And then when you give them something different, that's not what they wanted. So, yeah. Uh, you know what I actually think kind of had a Warner Brothers feel to it, ironically, was Disney's Darkwing Duck. <laughs> There's kind of a, a, you know, a Daffy thing going on there um, that, you know, I mean, it just kind of showed, I mean, as much as I'm sure Disney want, didn't want to acknowledge that the lesser studios existed at all. You know, that was one yeah. where, you know, they're clear, you know, the people working on it clearly grew up on Warner Brothers cartoons too and so they're Warner Brothers could have done something like that with Daffy if they'd been willing to I think rethink him a little bit not even a lot so as you say Darkwing Duck obviously does have a lot of similarity to Daffy but uh, especially you know Daffy and his hero wannabe phase so there is a cartoon where Daffy becomes a super superhero super duck so that they were obviously thinking of that to a certain extent and uh, but but there were attempts to develop a Daffy Duck half hour show like Daffy is kind of a Larry Sanders type who is, uh, you know, who had a show and it was kind of, uh, yeah, had kind of a messed up personal life away from it, but it was very difficult, I think, to get them to rethink a character, even to that extent. Uh, the, the only, 
the only show that sort of did that successfully was Tasmania, the, the, the cartoon about the Tasmanian devil. And the thing about that is that Taz is, a, you know, it surrounds Taz with this very large cast of char- new characters. But Taz himself is exactly the way he was in merch. He looks in merchandising. He does only the things we've seen him do in Warner Brothers cartoons, like spin and eat and yell and scream. And <laughs> yeah, because because again, the merch, if you would, if the you can only change the things around him. If you had tried to change Taz, then even like um, as minor a character like Taz, merchandising would have said, no, you can't change him. You, you, he has to be exactly the way we want him to be. If you have merchandising and corporate uh, and, uh, corporate incentives and all those other problems, it's very hard to find a new path with a character. Well, what did you expect in an opera? A happy ending? Jamie Weinman's Anvils, Mallets, and Dynamite, the unauthorized biography of Looney Tunes, is out now from Sutherland House. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Bruce Calvert and Jamie Weinman, and to Sarah Miniacci. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Nitrateville Radio will be off for the holidays, but I'll be back in the new year with more cool stuff. Thanks, and Feliz Feliz Navidad, happy holidays. Mungle like candy.